to be seated. Good evening to you. Proverbs chapter 16 tonight, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, currently a book of Proverbs. And if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, the Bible's always handy in church, but super handy on Sunday nights where we try to cover a little bit of territory in the Bible, um, at least a chapter or so. And so men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and get their attention and they'll get a Bible into your hands. And then, not just because it's the Christmas season, but if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Think about as we, by way of introduction tonight, just to think about the sense of privilege um, to be able to open up the Bible any time and to do it in relationship with the Holy Spirit, but then to open up the book of Proverbs as we do tonight and to be able to receive God's wisdom We live in a world where um, Daniel, the uh, messenger of the Lord, spoke to Daniel in the last chapter or so of the book of Daniel and said, in the last days, knowledge is going to increase. And boy, do we see knowledge increasing. Look at the computers and what we know about anything is just exploding geometrically. So much knowledge. Who can keep up with it? I mean, everybody has to just about become a specialist in all these different fields where a person could know, be the person you'd go to that would know everything about a particular subject. Now everything, not just medicine and law, but everything's divided. We know so much who can know all of it. But at the same time that knowledge is exploding, wisdom is almost disappearing at the same rate. What good is knowledge if you don't have the wisdom to apply it properly. And, of course, that's where the world is headed, this tremendous knowledge, so much information, so many weapons, so many everything. But man is going to, the Bible says in the last days, lack the wisdom to handle it in a godly way. And so wisdom is the thing. Without wisdom, knowledge is not only just about useless but it is even dangerous. And so tonight as we turn to the book of Proverbs to realize no matter whether we had a dad that put his arm around us and said, you know, son or daughter or mom, let me tell you a little bit about life. Let me tell you what you did wrong there and, and how to do it the next time. And imparting wisdom into our lives, more and more people are reaching adult life and They haven't had that kind of a person in their life. So it's all trial and error. And yet here is this book that allows us to come to it anytime we want to. And the way to picture it is a heavenly Father who is eager to speak into our lives his wisdom. So we don't have to get banged up any worse than we already get banged up in negotiating a very fallen and broken world. And he's got the wisdom for us. And when the whole book began, uh, Solomon wrote by the Spirit of the fact of the importance of the fear of the Lord related to wisdom. Because a person can read these verses, know these verses, have memorized these verses, but if there isn't the fear of the Lord that looks at it and says, I want to do more than know about these things. I want these things to characterize my life. I want this wisdom to characterize my life for my own good. 
but also for the glory of God as people get a chance to see God transform my life. And so we turn to this with that kind of a spirit. Father, speak to us tonight. You speak to us tonight through your word. Just don't want to know what each one of these proverbs means so we know it, but just to have him speak to the privacy of our own heart. And just so you think that it isn't just um, children or youth or adolescents that need uh, somebody to put an arm around them and say, let's um, talk about what happened right there and how we might do better next time. <laughs> I'm just about a month shy of being 59 years old. And I'll tell you, I feel like I am st- starting every day. I feel like I'm starting in terms of learning and in terms of wisdom. We all need it. Uh, in our lives, because um, well, the older you get, you know, you you need the wisdom because you're in a new place in life. But then also, you forget a lot too. So you need these reminders. All right, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 27, and verses 27 through 30, the um, Solomon writes here, and he refers to. Uh, troublemakers of uh, various kinds. An ungodly man digs up evil. He gets like he gets dirt on people, and it's on, and it is on his lips. This evil that he digs up related to people, it's on his lips like a burning fire. He uses it to scorch people, or he uses it to burn or to harm uh, people. And so here we have a condemnation of again what we would say in our culture. Um, digging up dirt on a certain person in order to hurt them or to harm them. And this is all around us. It's a funny thing. You've got these different um, websites and you've got different television shows that are given to um, gossip. They're given to slander. They're given to digging up secrets on the stars and putting them out there for everyone to hear. And and, you know, sometimes you can sit from the safety of a living room with a remote and uh, just listen to all of that poison because it's mainstreamed in our culture, this kind of um, harming of people, especially we feel like if they're powerful or they're famous or they're prominent, somehow they're not people anymore. Uh, somehow they didn't have a mother that nursed them. Or they didn't have a father who cared about them. They're just this thing. They're something other than us. They can handle it. They can take it. And so the culture, and especially entertainment, it feels very free at taking people's secrets, uh, discovering them, and then making them known abroad. I'll tell you one thing that will cure you of it is to have somebody do that to you. And then you sit down, that same show, your person watches for years, and then once they've been the object of somebody doing that to them, all of a sudden now they don't want anything to do with it. And it's sad, it marks the culture, but we should be aware of it, that this is something that God says, this is the, the, the actions of an ungodly uh, human being, and we have course, should refrain from it. Verse 28, a perverse man, and speaking of a man here, the perverse man specifically is one who distorts the truth. He's a liar. The perverse man sows strife, and a whisperer separates the best of friends. And so here we have a condemnation of the kind of person who deliberately 
uh, distorts the truth in order to stir up trouble or to stir up distrust among people uh, through gossip or through slander. And so something happens, they'll distort it, they'll make it worse than it is, or um, they uh, want someone to fall out of favor with someone else so that they can then have that relationship with that person, this kind of thing that goes on and other things uh, like it. And they're trying to stir up trouble in people's lives through gossip or slander, and the Bible condemns it from one end of the book to the other. A violent man entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. And so here we have the condemnation of those who tempt other people into violence and a life of violence. And there are people like that where they are living a violent life. They're not content to live it on their own. They want to make disciples. They want to draw other people into that kind of a lifestyle. And uh, so they will uh, recruit others into the same life that they have. And, of course, the great examples of that today are gangs, which are um, prolific in this city and in most medium to large cities in the United States of America. How do those things exist? How do those gangs enlarge except that you have this kind of a person that God condemns who is not only engaging in the life himself, but then he is very active in recruiting people into uh, following him in that same kind of life. And it doesn't just refer to gangs, but really to all uh, criminal behavior or wrongdoing. Verse 30, he winks his eye uh, to devise uh, perverse things. He purses his lips and brings about evil. And so this is the violent man. And so you have people, he's talking about a guy, winks his eyes, he's clever, he's working the thing. He takes, he takes someone that's innocent and he wants to draw him, say, into wrongdoing or into a life of crime or whatever it might be. So he's very crafty about it. He doesn't say, listen, here's what I want to do. I want to lead you into a life of crime and uh, so you can spend the very best years of your life in prison. He doesn't do that. Uh, the, the devil's never that clear. So he comes in and he just entices you a little bit. You come in here, become a part of what I'm about, and you get a little bit of this and you get a little bit of that. Never shows you the whole picture all at once. Very, very crafty in in, uh, drawing people, luring them down that path just one step at a time. You know, sometimes people are so crafty, they're so good at recruiting into evil, you wonder if they had just kind of put it, to work for good as a headhunter or to work for uh, some other company, they'd probably rise to the top. And so there is this kind of person that takes kind of a natural talent and a natural gift, charisma and all of this kind of thing, but they take it to the dark side. Verse 31, the silver-haired head. Well, this must be something very, very good. It's talking about gray hair. Um, whether you allow... Whether, well, let's put it this way. Whether you have gray hair and everybody knows it, or you have gray hair and nobody else knows it, but you've got to take out a second job to afford um, hiding that from the rest of us. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about 
silver hair, gray-haired head. The silver-haired head, and it indicates here a long life, it's a crown of glory. If, ah, there's the big if, it is found in the way of righteousness. And so here's a proverb very needed in our culture, youth-oriented culture. Here's a proverb that honors old age when that uh, older person is growing as a saint and uh, growing gray on the path of the Lord. And not every person gets better with age. They really don't. You know, the old saying where it talks about circumstances in life that you can hit, it's either going to make you bitter or better. And uh, when you're younger, you talk about an event making you bitter or better. <laughs> when you get a little bit older, you talk about life making you bitter or better. And you watch people who grow old. They either become bitter or they become better. And I'm not quoting like Joel Osteen or something on that. It was around long before him. But um, it, is, it is true. When somebody is walking on the path uh, of the Lord... Uh, there is that crown, and the crown speaks of something that is a, a glory. It's just a beautiful thing uh, in their life. And again, it's an attractive life, that, a life that's growing older and, and uh, with the Lord and seeking righteousness and continuing to grow in the Lord. And again, I think I mentioned it last week. That kind of person was very attractive to me. You know, when you're in junior high, you don't walk up to like someone with silver hair. Silver hair, silver hair. So you don't walk up to them and say something. You're in junior high. You're not going to go talk to a person like that, unless you're an extraordinary uh, youth. But boy, do you watch. Boy, do you watch. And especially if you come from a messed up place in life, boy, do you watch. And that life is attractive. You watch from a distance. You watch how people carry themselves, how they conduct themselves, the joy that they have, all of these things, and they're learning. And uh, without, and you'll never know that that's going on and it's making an impact, but it is. Great, great um, proverb encouraging growing older in the Lord. It's a blessing to the person, but also to those who witness. That life. Verse 32, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. So here's a proverb that emphasizes the importance of self-control. Well, that's a valuable thing, isn't it? So think about that self-control, spirit control for us as Christians, self-control. We live in a culture that has thrown off self-control oh, probably back in the 60s. If it feels good, do it. And then nobody told everybody that there's a hook to sin. You're free to make that choice to do what feels good but violates God's Word. But once you do that one time, two times, three times, now the freedom is gone and all of that. Now there's a hook in, in all of it. And uh, self-control gets lost, and in the culture, self-control is is really lost. On any level you'd want to talk about, you, all you need to do is go into a bookstore, look at the um, nonfiction 
and uh, counter bestsellers, and what are all of them? They're almost all of them are self-help or in some way trying to help people gain some control over their lives through self-control. So self-control is a very, very valuable thing, and the Holy Spirit brings that uh, into our lives. So this is uh, emphasizing that, and that conquering oneself is harder but it is also an even greater accomplishment than conquering a city. And the Holy Spirit will help us do that. You think about Alexander the Great. Conquered the whole known world. By the time he was about 30 years old. And then after he conquered the whole, whole known world, it said that he cried because there wasn't any more to conquer. And yet he lacked Self-control. You think about how many great military men through the years conquered cities, conquered um, countries, conquered all kinds of things, and yet unable to conquer their own appetite or to exercise self-control and ended up destroying their lives. And so uh, he who is slow to anger has self-control in that area of their life is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every direction is from the Lord. So the Old Testament way of determining the will of God was through uh, the casting of lots, and they trusted in God to lead in that casting of lots in order for Uh, his will to be uh, revealed. And so today we don't cast lots as Christians. We go to the Bible for God's wisdom and his direction. We go to prayer, asking him for wisdom. James says that if any of us lacks wisdom, we don't need to cast lots, but we need to ask God for that wisdom, who won't make fun of us because we don't know what to do in that situation. I say, you'll never go to God and say, God, I need wisdom here, and hear like a chuckle in the back room. And never laugh at us. He knows we need wisdom. And, and so here's this today that we receive wisdom by, from the Bible, prayer, the leading of the Holy Spirit. And verse 33 is also communicating the fact that the Lord is in control of our lives, not chance. It really isn't. You know, I've, um, walked with the Lord since 1980. And I've learned quite a few things in those years. I would say in the top five things that I have learned experientially, not just in my noggin, but from experience, is the fact that God is provident and he is sovereign. He is actively engaged in our lives. Our lives are not left to chance. And sometimes you find yourself in the middle of a trial that you can't even believe or a circumstance, and you just wonder, is he like in Tahiti or vacationing somewhere or what is going on. And then later, the Bible talks about afterwards, then you see what he was up to all along. And oftentimes it's not a change in the circumstances, but it's the development of godly character in our life. And then we see it and we go, oh, that's what you were doing. I thought it was just about everything that was in the physical, A, B, and C, and I was asking you to take care of those things, and it looked like it was all out of control. But now I see you were working these things into my life, and I realize this wasn't all chance. So as a Christian, we should never say to people, hey, good luck. 
Sometimes you'll hear people say that. And I don't ever, I never grimace outwardly. But inside I do. I'm not critical of it, but I, I mean it just, we should never do that. Because our lives are under much more capable hands than luck. They're in the hands of God. And so God bless you is a lot better for a Christian. Chapter 17, verse 1. Better is a dry morsel. In other words, a crust of bread. You've had it when it's been left out and it's just a dry as can be. You've got to dip it in milk to get it down. Or one of those Zweibach crackers. Remember those? Some of you say, remember, I eat them every day. All right. God bless you. Better is a dry morsel, a crust of bread with quietness than a house full of feasting, a great banquet where there's strife, where there's bickering, and where there's fighting. I think that's true. Ultimately, everybody comes to a place in our life where we begin to prize uh, peace in life uh, more than strife and fighting, and so much so that we would just take a little crust of bread that's dry where we're going to have peace and quiet and go to some banquet or feast where it's all going to be fighting and bickering. Verse 2, a wise servant, literally a wise slave, will rule over a son who causes shame to the family and will share an inheritance among the brothers. And so a faithful servant is more valuable to a father than a rebellious son. And that's the truth. A faithful servant can even rise higher in a place within the family business or the worker, the estate, and uh, then a rebellious son and even receive his part of uh, the son's part of the inheritance. Happens all the time. I think about in the Old Testament where Solomon, uh, God did it himself. Solomon ruled over the whole land of Israel. Amazing. And then he got into all of his sin and God, and he had a very faithful servant by the name of Jeroboam. And God sent a a prophet to Jeroboam and said to him, because of the sin of your master, I'm going to tear ten tribes away, ten of the twelve tribes away from the control of his lineage, and I'm going to give them to you, and you're going to be the king over those northern ten tribes. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he answered the people harshly related to asking for tax relief and all. He was a foolish son. And and then the ten tribes broke off, broke away from uh, the, the other two tribes. And so the Lord, here you have a wise servant. He was wise at the time. Ultimately, he uh, didn't always practice wisdom. But here was someone who was more valuable as a servant than even the bloodline. And the Lord gave those twelve tribes, uh, ten tribes, to that man. And so there are many, many people who are waiting to take advantage of uh, the opportunity that a spoiled child esteems lightly. Sometimes that happens in life. A child has so much, he feels like he has the margins to rebel and break the father's heart, break the family's heart. And then what he doesn't realize is there are 10,000 slaves who dream 
of having the place that he has in life. And if he is dumb enough to vacate it, then they will be very happy to take it. So it's a warning against being uh, that kind of a dumb uh, son. Verse 3, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. And so silver and gold, they were very familiar with it. I don't know how often you're refining silver and gold in your garage, uh, but we don't get to see that that much. And where the jewelers do all of that, you know, you got to, I don't know where you go to watch this. But in the ancient world, it was imagery that was well known to people. And you would take the silver or the gold and they would be put into the furnace and, and they'd be refined by virtue of, of bringing that great heat to bear a, 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 on it. And the impurities would separate from the purity of, of the gold or the silver and that dross would then uh, be removed. And of course, because the heart, what does God care about silver and gold? The Bible says the streets in heaven are going to be paved with gold. It says says the the streets are are clear. When gold is purified to its ultimate place, it looks clear when you look at it from a certain angle. So gold really is, as the old saying goes, it's just used as asphalt in heaven. What does God really value in life? Our hearts. So if jewelers are going to refine silver and gold because that's what they do, then how much more is God going to refine our hearts? And oftentimes that takes a great burning or a great uh, trial that he will introduce into our lives in order to purify uh, our hearts. He will be faithful to do that. And it isn't a bad thing. We only think it's a bad thing when we lose perspective and we put our focus on the trial or on the fire and we lose sight of what that fire is burning off in our lives, what that fire is accomplishing in our lives, what it's exposing and and burning away. Peter put it this way in his first epistle. He said, In this you rejoice greatly, though now for a little while, if need be, you are grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes. Do you see your faith that way? That's how God sees it. Though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ when we see him one day face to face. So this whole life that we're living right now is a preparation for that appointment. That's what it is. So we buy into all these different definitions of what life is about and all. God looks at our life and he says, here's what your life is all about. It is a preparation for one day. When you stand before my son, as you then make an entrance into heaven, and I want you to be properly prepared for that meeting so that you can hear that well done. And then God works in our lives, whatever is necessary, in order for that to happen in our future. And it's going to mean the Lord testing or refining our heart. An evildoer does, gives heed to false lips and a liar eagerly to a spiteful tongue. Now, this is a very fascinating proverb because here you have a proverb about the guilty listener. We've read so many proverbs that are about the guilty speaker. But the guilty speaker or the ungodly speaker 
wouldn't get any traction at all unless they had listeners, unless they had hearers. They wouldn't be able to do any damage unless there were people that were willing to listen to their lies and uh, the spite that is coming uh, out of their tongues. And so the proverb tells us that it's, it is evil to enjoy lies and to swallow lies that are being spoken about another person. And it is only evil within me that likes to hear such lies and then chooses to believe them. I'd like to say that I've never enjoyed a lie that I heard about another person. But I have. I might not have known that it was a lie at the time. Or I might have known that it was a variation on the facts. But there's something about our hearts that likes that. And we need a warning against it. Oh, I'm not talking about since I've become a Christian. Way before that. Talks about the fact that a liar loves to listen to a tongue that's used to hurt or destroy other people. And so you've got the picture here as eagerly as a righteous listener listens to righteousness being spoken from a wise person, the liar has just as, he is just as great a student to listen to lies and to listen to what is spiteful or does harm to people's name and to their reputation. And so who we listen to, what we listen to, says an awful lot about us. And again, there is so much today that is in the media, that is in newspapers, that is in online and all, that is just filled with lies. Lying is mainstream today. And, and, it, and people love to hear lies. Politically, people on the left love to hear lies about people on the right. People on the right love to hear lies about people on the left. There's just something about the flesh that likes all of that, not just in the political realm, but everywhere. But uh, it is a very poor reflection upon us uh, if we're that kind of person. The proverb warns against it. He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. And he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. And again, here we have God's protection of the poor. God defends the poor from one end of the book to the other. Jesus said, the poor you'll have with you always. That told us that communism wasn't going to work and will not work. The poor you'll have with you always. And the Lord loves the poor. And to mock a person and and to mock the poor for simply being poor is just one of the ugliest expressions of pride. Because it is to forget that God created that person as much as he ever created you or me. And God loves that person as much as he loves you and loves me. And I would never say that God makes a person poor or this, but there's a lot of people who choose um, different places in life to for God's glory. I don't know of any rich missionaries. If you know of any, you, you can just you can send me the um, website. Every missionary that I know is always fighting, always fighting to get their support up to 80%, much less 100%. 
You say, why would they choose to live? I mean, sometimes they're in the poorest countries in the whole world, and they still can't get supported on that level. And why would they do that? Why would they choose to live a life of poverty and all? They do it just to glorify the Lord, be obedient uh, to the Lord. There are other people in life where, you know, there are certain things today in the age that we live in where certain skills and certain abilities are highly rewarded, unfairly rewarded, in my opinion. And then, and then other skills and abilities that people have might have been massively rewarded two or three hundred years ago, but now there is no financial reward for it. I think about people that work in the whole financial field, Wall Street, the investment, the whole deal like this and all. They have These folks that are good at it, they have a gift. I'm not saying that they ought not to be able to earn their money. But I mean, to be able to take in, in an instant, have this kind of an insight, this kind of an ability to see this thing coming here, to move this, and instantly you've made $250 million. And then this guy over here who is maintaining the machines in the hospital that keep that person alive once they land in that hospital. And it's all upside down. God looks at people as individuals. He doesn't look at them in terms of income. He doesn't look at terms of what the culture rewards or doesn't reward. It's a terrible thing. I'm probably going to stop and talk about that every single time we get to it. We've got a funny thing going on in our culture because we have developed in the past... A, um, a welfare state where people have chosen not to work and uh, to get something for nothing. But that's drying up, and that will continue to dry up. In the, in the Old Testament, when it talks about the poor, it's talking about the working poor. There was no Social Security. You worked or you didn't eat. That's the way that it was. And when people are hustling and people are trying and, and yet... Uh, they are in a place of living a life of poverty as a result of it for whatever the circumstances are. None of us should ever, ever, ever look down uh, on the poor uh, for that reason. Never make fun of the poor. They have a very, very special place in the heart of God. The second part of that verse, uh, the Holy Spirit is declaring that it's just as bad when people gloat or they rejoice over the misfortunes of others. God says, well, if you're that kind of person, then misfortune will come uh, your own way as well. It's an interesting thing in the Old Testament that when God brought his judgment on the children of Israel through the Babylonians, first through the Assyrians in the northern kingdom of Israel, then the Babylonians in the southern kingdom of Judah, that God was going to spank his people. He was going to more than spank them. I mean, he was going to discipline them in a massive way. And they disobeyed him, and he's going to purify them, and he was going to chasten them. And the problem is, is that when he did that to his people, the surrounding nations began to pile on to the spanking that God was giving to his people. The Edomites and and the other surrounding nations, they began to come in, strip the wealth away from the children of Israel. They began to dance. They began to laugh. They began to party at the following fall of the Jews. 
And then God spends his time and the prophet speaking to them and saying, because you did that, because you danced on the graves of my people, this was between me and them, I'm going to bring judgment on you. And he proceeded to bring the Babylonians on them as well. It's so important. It's interesting to realize that the children of Israel deserved the chastening that they received, the hardship that they received. But even when we hear about that in another person's life, we should never look at that and say, well, good, they got exactly what they deserved. That's arrogance, and that's pride, and God notices it. It's a thing to look and say, look at it and say, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God, and I'm going to keep my mouth shut and stay out of it and go about my own business. And so the importance of, of viewing things um, in that way. Verse 6, children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children is their father. So grandchildren are a crown, and a crown speaks of beauty. It speaks of blessing. Grandchildren bring great beauty into the life of a grandparent, great blessing into the life of a grandparent. And the second half of the verse speaks of the fact that children should be able to be proud of their parents. Isn't that a wonderful thing for God to put in his word? Just let that sit on our hearts, no matter what our age is. Those of us who have children, however old they are, however young they are, the children should be able to be proud of their parents. And so what the Lord is speaking here in this proverb is that each generation within a family is to take pride in the other generation and look to bless every part, every generation, and look out for them. So God doesn't know anything about this generation gap. That's a Western phenomenon. A family was a family. From the patriarch who might be 95 to the baby that was born one week earlier, that was one family. That's how things were looked at. We may be headed back toward that, away from our independence and our individuality that we have so strong in this culture because there is a security for one another in that family unit that we've tried to cast off. But maybe even the United States of America isn't rich enough to provide what only a family can to people. And so, but here is this, no generation gaps in terms of how God wants family to be done. It's to be one for all and all for one. And it's a beautiful family that operates that way. Verse 7, excellent speech is not becoming to a fool, much less lying lips to a prince. And so here you have things that don't go together, and that is excellent speech and a fool. That, uh, that just never happens. And uh, lying lips should never go together uh, with a prince, and uh, it's inappropriate, and uh, so uh, things that shouldn't go together. Verse 8, a present, King James uh, Version translates it bribe, which is accurate. A present or a bribe is a precious stone in the eyes of the possessor. Wherever he turns, he prospers. And so this verse is not an encouragement to bribery, but it speaks of a bribe from the giver's um, perspective. To give a bribe uh, or to give a gift, it opens up a lot of doors. It always has. Uh, somebody could say, well, that, 
That gift worked like a charm. It got me in where I wouldn't have otherwise been able to get into. And so bribes are effective. It doesn't mean that God approves of of bribes, just stating a fact here. And uh, later on in verse 23, God's view of, of the bribe, of a bribe comes out where he condemns it. Verse 9, he who covers a transgression, and this is the idea of a sin that's been committed against us. He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. And so the person who's been sinned against, and that person, that might be you tonight, and that person uh, then who keeps that sin against themselves, keeps that to themselves rather than telling everybody else in the family, everybody else in the church, everybody else at school and all. Uh, that's the mark of a person who seeks love. When somebody sins against me and I keep it to myself and I give time for the Lord to work in that other person's heart to then come and make it right rather than telling everybody, when that person is finally convicted of their wrongdoing, they will realize the fact that we didn't broadcast that means that we valued the relationship, if not with them, our relationship with the Lord, that we valued the relationship, we loved them enough, we wanted reconciliation enough that we didn't go out and do further damage to the relationship. They sinned against me, so now I'm going to sin against them by slandering them or uh, gossiping uh, related to them. And, of course, to uh, cover a transgression is to be like the Lord. The Lord keeps our sin just as private as he possibly can while he deals with it. What if the Lord just went to everybody the moment we sinned? Hey, did you hear about... Who would want to become a Christian if that's the way that God was? The moment we sin, boy, boom, he tells five people right in your family or in the church, and he doesn't do that, does he? Not at all. He keeps it quiet. It's between you and him. And then he works and he works and he works to bring conviction. And then he brings the conviction. And we realize the fact that you didn't share that all over the place means that you love me and that you value the relationship. And we love them all the more for it. And so to be that way is to be like God. And it is to be like how God deals with us uh, all of the time. And so the second half of the proverb talks about the fact that most of the damage that gets done in a relationship isn't done by the original sin that was done against the first person. It's the damage that gets done when... That gets shared with other people, and then it gets scattered and scattered and scattered, and then people miss them, they missay it, and then it becomes lies, and then all that damage is done. That's what keeps a relationship from being restored and reconciled. Not the first sin, the poor response to the first sin, or we should say the unchristlike response uh, to the first sin. And that's a, a, a good warning to us. There's a tremendous temptation when we've been sinned against to try and find comfort from some other human being rather than God. I've been hurt. I've been damaged. It did me wrong. I just want to get on the phone and talk to somebody who will understand and tell me how terrible all of it was. But I'll tell you, it's tough to find confidential people in the world, even in the body of Christ on those things. They got to write on their blog before they go to sleep. It's all over the world. The damage gets done in that 
in, in that, uh, that kind of place. We want to, we have this great temptation to share it and uh, rather than take it to the Lord, give it time and let the Lord work it out. Uh, people will respect us so much more when we do. Rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. And so the idea is that the wiser a person is, the less severe the chastening or the punishment needs to be to get through to them. The wise man, you just rebuke him, and he receives the rebuke, and he accepts that. I was watching a little bit of the 49er game today, and uh, they won, by the way. Oh, I shouldn't have told you that. I might have taped it and listened to it later. So you forgive me. Remember the previous verse? You forgive me on that. I was quick to repent. Um, but one of the buccaneers made a, ter- you might have seen it, just a terrible play where he fumbled the ball. And Kendall Hunter, oh, I know all their names. Kendall Hunter grabs the ball and he's in the, you know, for a touchdown and all. The next scene is the coach is talking to that player on the sideline. I'll tell you, a picture's worth a thousand words. You know, that, that man, he's a grown man listening to that coach. It's being broadcast all over the world, you know, on television. And it's like, yes, sir, yes, sir. I mean, he's listening exactly to what, uh, what's, what's being said. That's a wise man. That's a wise football player. And whatever he's making per year, I'll tell you, for the right kind of heart that watched that, that was its own sermon. I have immense respect for him. And then the fool, you can hit him a hundred times with a belt or whip or whatever you want, and and nothing will get through to him because everybody else is wrong and he's always right. And um, even though his life is a disaster in every direction. Verse 11, an evil man seeks only rebellion. And therefore, a cruel messenger will be sent against him. And so this speaks of a man who is rebellious against authority. There's a lot of rebellion against authority that goes on today. And the second half of the verse is uh, very uh, poetic, very strong. Therefore, a cruel messenger will be uh, sent against him. That's another term for law enforcement. So... uh, a person who's naturally rebellious against authority and arrest by a merciless uh, messenger, merciless law enforcement officer is in his future. And that's the truth. Let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs. What could be worse than that? I, want, I mean, that's supposed to be like one of the most dangerous things to run into in the wild is a mama bear that's been robbed of her cubs. You don't want that to happen. There nothing could be worse than that. Oh, yes, there is something worse than that. Running into a fool in his folly. In other words, when a fool is going to engage in his particular area of foolishness or his sin, and he says, hey, listen, this is what I'm thinking about doing. Why don't you come along with me? And in the same way, you ought to run away from a bear, mama bear who's been robbed of her cubs, run away from a fool who is planning to engage in his particular brand of foolishness and run for your life. Never follow a fool Run from a fool. That might be a very direct word to someone here 
uh, tonight concerning something going on in your life. Verse 13, whoever rewards evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. It's a terrible thing to repay evil for good. Isn't that terrible? Here's somebody that's nothing but good for you. And then the one time they have need, then the person responds to that with evil. I think about one of the worst pictures of that in the whole Bible to me is in the historical book, Second Chronicles, where there was a king by the name of Joash. And he became a king at a very young age. I think it was like eight years old. And he grew uh, into a, a godly young man and, and a godly king early in his reign because he was under the influence of a very, very godly priest by the name of Jehoiada. And then once he became an adult and he got a little bit older, he threw off the counsel uh, of, of Jeho- Jehoiada and he began to follow his own peers and and uh, became a, a terrible king. Later on, after he walked away from the Lord, and uh, ultimately Jehoiada's son would come, had a calling as a prophet from God as well. He came to Joash, rebuked him for his sin, and Joash had him put to death. He owed his entire life to that, that boy's father. And then when the chance came to do good, for the good that had been done, he did evil for the good. I don't know, there's something about that story that I really, really don't like. And he talks about the fact that evil will not depart from this kind of person's house. If a person's that kind of person, they repay evil for good, word about that person spreads pretty quickly. And pretty soon, they're going to discover that no one's going to be willing to extend any good to them or to have anything to do with them, which, of course, then brings evil or brings a curse upon the whole family. And so what we, we reap what we sow relationally, and people tend to treat us in the way that we treat uh, them. Verse 14, the beginning of strife is like releasing water. It's like a little hole in a dam or in a dike. Therefore... Stop contention before a quarrel starts. And so this uh, proverb teaches us that it's very risky business to begin a needless quarrel because you never know what it's going to turn into or how destructive it's going to become. So you've got a little crack. Remember the, was it the little Dutch boy or whatever that had his finger in the crack of the dike, you know, and it's cracking and all, and he's stopping the whole thing from giving way. I don't know if that was like a story or a commercial or whatever it is. A lot of pressure on that guy. I hope somebody was bringing him meals. Red Bull or something, I don't know. Eight-hour energy or something. But he's got that little hole and the recognition that a little hole, uh, if some pull your finger out of there, the water starts to run, it opens up, and the whole dike goes. And we see the same thing, the same danger with levees and and dams and that kind of thing. Just a little tiny weakness right there. But once it starts, that water starts to flow through, now you lose control, and now it can become an absolute disaster. And it's the same thing that can happen with a quarrel. Sometimes people who are quarrelsome, or even if we're not quarrelsome by nature, by sin nature, um, we can have a temptation related to it. 
We say, I'm going to pick a quarrel related to this little issue that happened right here. The proverb says, you better be careful. How often have you begun a quarrel with somebody else? Maybe a husband, maybe a wife, maybe with another person. And you thought, I'll just start this quarrel. I'll get this off my chest. I'll just say to them. And then three hours later, I mean, you say, I wish I'd have never said a word. Because where that went and how destructive it became is a horrible thing. And it happens all of the time. And so we want to watch that and be careful of that. Wisdom tells us to not to start Uh, any quarrels unnecessarily. Stop the contention before the quarrel starts. There's no need to quarrel when we have an option, and the option is to sit down and maturely address the issue. Solution-oriented conversation. This is what's going on. Now, how can we come together and make this happen? And nowhere is that more important than... It's important everywhere in life, but nowhere is that more important than in a marriage And that's why the Apostle Paul, when he um, uh, wrote and writing to the Ephesians, he said, be angry and sin not. And then he said, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Solve those issues that are going on in a constructive way on a daily basis before you go to bed. So you don't go to bed with it, and it festers, and then it festers for a week, and then it festers for a month, and then all of a sudden somebody says something, and then all of this comes out, and the dam breaks loose, and the damage that's done to the marriage is terrible. And it's really true of any relationship. And so best to stop the contention before a quarrel starts, and that is by constructively uh, addressing it. And a very, very good instruction uh, and warning against starting uh, needless arguments. In verse 15, he who justifies the wicked, well, that's an upside-down judicial system, isn't it? And he who condemns the just, ooh, further upside-downness, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. And so God likes justice to be meted out in our uh, judicial systems within a nation. It should never be one that, uh, that, that justifies the wicked and condemns the just. And the Lord promises both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord, that one day uh, he will judge all that kind of corruption. Verse 16, why is there in the hand of a fool the purchase price of wisdom since he has no heart for it? So again, here is wisdom. It will never do a person any good unless they also possess the desire for wisdom, that they want wisdom enough that they'd be willing to buy it. But without a desire for wisdom, uh, a person is not going to have any part of it. You've got to bring at least that to the table. Verse 17, a friend loves at all time, and a brother is born for adversity. So true friends and true loved ones, they're faithful not only when you won the lottery, not only during prosperity, but also during adversity. And that's where we really find out who our real friends are. It's not when everything's going great and everything's going wonderful. Who are our faithful friends? Who are our faithful loved ones within our family? Those that stick with us, not just through the thick, but also uh, through uh, the thin. 
and uh, the hard times. And, of course, Jesus is just that friend. I'll tell you what, he, he, is he a faithful friend or what? Man, is he faithful. Ups and downs and wherever we are, he is always faithful, loves us at all times. And boy, has he been born for adversity in our life. A man devoid of understanding shakes hands in a pledge and becomes a surety for his friend. So another warning against uh, co-signing, we would say it on a loan, that you can't afford uh, to pay if the person you're co-signing for uh, defaults on the loan. And so it's just a warning against that. You can co-sign for somebody else if they, a family member, whatever, if they begin to default on the loan and you have the margins and the ability then to meet the loan. But if you don't, then there shouldn't be any co-signing on it. Now, we think about it and say, well, we co-sign. What are they going to do, take away the car or whatever like this? Well, in the old days, back in those days, when you went into debt, you went into prison. (laughs) So the idea was, listen, don't be co-signing for anything you aren't willing to go to prison for. And uh, so uh, the warning against becoming a a surety for somebody else's um, indebtedness. He who loves transgression loves strife, and he who exalts his gate seeks destruction. That first part of the proverb, he who loves transgression loves strife. We get another way we could put that is sin is messy. Do you notice that? Do you notice that sin is messy? And it's not just messy for the person that commits the sin. It's messy for everyone they know. It complicates life so much. So here I have a person that goes and they engage in transgression. They get into difficulty in life. They choose to walk away from the Lord. They make these disastrous decisions. And then everything blows up in their face. And then they come back to you and they want to, um, you know, something from you or they want you to fix the whole thing or they want you to compromise your standard in some way in order to bail them out of something. And you just look at it and you say, you know, sin is messy and I can't solve that for you. It just is. And this thing is a mess because of sin. And the only way you fix that kind of a mess is you got to turn from that sin. But sin is messy and it's hard for everyone, not just the person who commits the sin, but everyone else. That second part, he who exalts his gate seeks destruction. And this refers to the kind of person who builds their house on a high place. You can build your house on the hills or wherever you want to build your house. You're free to do that. But here's the condemnation of building a house on a high place. Israel had a lot of mountains and hills and those kind of things. So building a house higher than your neighbors as a demonstration of your superiority. Or to build a gate, as it talks about uh, um, here, who exalts his gate seeks destruction. So here you are. You live on a street where everybody's got these normal kind of gates into their house, and then they would have courtyards in the back. That's the Middle Eastern architecture. And so everybody's got like these uniform gates in the neighborhood. Everybody's middle class, and these are the gates that they're selling at Home Depot. So everybody's got them. And then, and then one day you wake up, and a guy's got a gate in front of his house that's like three times the size of his house. 
because he's going to tell all of the neighbors that he's better than all of them. That's kind of the idea, drawing attention uh, to himself and to show off or, or to that kind of an arrogance. And uh, when a person does that kind of thing, uh, he says he seeks destruction. In other words, that kind of person is going to uh, get uh, trouble from uh, those that he's putting down by building his gates so high. And so it is an expression of pride. Pride almost always ends up in this life, always in the life to come. But pride almost always lend, ends up in a humiliation. So it's warning against these kind of expressions of pride. We'll stop there and we'll pick it up in verse 20 um, next time. Let's stand together and we'll ask the worship team to come forward as well. So many nuggets, so many different things that get addressed. I mean, never a dull moment in in the book of Proverbs.